0: The text for my message today is actually the second chapter of Matthew, the portion of it we read together a little while ago, but ancillary to that, I'd like to read these words from Genesis 12. They are God's call to Abraham. And it says, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise was made to Abraham more than 2,000 years before Jesus was born. It was a promise of blessing to Abraham. A promise of a blessing to Abraham's family and descendants but it was also a promise that through them, God would bless all of the nations of the earth. And in the visit of the Magi, men representing a nation other than Israel, we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of this ancient promise. This event, the visit of the Magi, is one of the most familiar of the Bible, and yet it's also one of the most mysterious. We who know the story well, discover that every time we read it and think about it, we have more questions than we have answers. We wonder about these men. Who were they? What was their status in whatever land they represented? We wonder where they did come from. We wonder when did they arrive. We wonder what was it that they saw in the night sky that triggered their awareness that the Messianic King had been born. And we wonder, where they men already transformed by the grace of God, whose lives were forever changed by finding Jesus? Or were they simply running an official errand and left unchanged by the whole experience? On this second Sunday of Advent, I'd like to look with you at the visit of the Magi. In that regard, all of us have probably had the experience of discovering that something we have always believed to be true is not, in fact, true after all. Examples of that abound. For example, if I were to ask you during the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts back in the colonial period of our history, how many witches were burned at the stake, what would your answer be? It's easy to imagine that someone would say, well, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe as many as 200. But the answer is none. 20 people were found guilty of witchcraft in, in Salem. 20 people were put to death because of that verdict, but not one of them was burned to death. If I were to ask you, what's the speed of light? I'm sure that most expecting a trap by now probably wouldn't be any answers, but apart from that, I can imagine a junior high school boy who loves science, raising his hand, eager to answer. It's 186,300 miles per second, he would say, and everybody would nod our heads. And that's what I would have said until very recently. We all know that light travels very, very fast. We're all familiar with the phrase, light year. We understand that that's how distances are measured in space. In fact, we've all tried to do the the calculations and we've been all staggered by the immensity of space and the distances between things in space. I was reading a book recently called The Book of General Ignorance, and I was surprised to read that the speed of light is not a constant. The speed of light in space is indeed 186,000 plus miles per second, but the speed of light is changed by the media through which light passes. For example, when light passes through a diamond, it slows down to about 80,000 miles per second. Scientists have reduced the temperature of sodium to minus two hundred and seventy-two degrees centigrade and found that when light passes through sodium at that temperature, it's crawling along at a bare thirty-eight miles an hour. And in fact, they have passed light into a condensate of rubidium and found out that light stops dead in its tracks. And isn't that interesting? Because we all thought, I would imagine, that the speed of light is universal, it's a steady, it's always the same, 186,000 miles a minute. This book also, or a, uh, a second, this book also takes issue with the common assumption that until the advent of more or less modern science, people on earth generally believe that the earth is flat. And in fact, the book claims that this is a fairly recent idea, and it was not true of the ancients at all. They say that in 1828, Washington Irving wrote a book. It was a historical novel. It was partly true, partly false, that he called the life and voyages of Christopher Columbus, and in it, he makes the claim that Columbus's journey was done in order to prove that the earth, in fact, was not flat, contrary to the beliefs of everybody that he lived with, and from that point, the idea caught on until today. It is common knowledge that in the ancient world everybody believed the earth is flat when in fact they did not. In our Bibles in Isaiah 40, 22, we read that God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth. There are several things commonly to be believed to be true of the Magi. That on Closer examination proved to either be false or unknowable, and some of these errors have found their way into the hymnody of the church, and those of us who know the scriptures well realize in a song that we sang very recently. One of these errors is that the wise men were kings, about which we just sang, and another of these errors is that they were three in number, about which we just sang. There's an ancient tradition in the church that The names of these men are known and those names are Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Another of these errors if they arrived on the same night on which Jesus was born. And another error related to the visit of the wise men is that the light that they saw in the sky was also seen by the shepherds. This is expressed in ancient hymns of the church and in one of the most modern songs of the season. A little shepherd boy sings, do you see what I see? And the answer, of course, is a star, a star. To these, the thoughtful student of Scripture responds, first of all, that they most certainly were not kings. In the Greek New Testament, the word for them is magoi, which becomes magi in our language, and magi in the ancient world were certainly not kings. They were a very influential class of men in ancient societies, and particularly in those regions once occupied by the Babylonian and the Persian empires. They were scholars, they were philosophers, they were priests. They specialized in a unique combination of astronomy and astrology, believing that there were signs in the stars that were omens of things yet to come upon the earth you may remember that the Old Testament prophet Daniel was numbered among the Magi. And in fact, these men who come to Christ in Matthew 2 may have been influenced by the work of this Old Testament prophet. They were not kings. They were almost certainly advisors to a king. And that means that when they came to Jesus, it was a state visit as much as a matter of personal inquiry. We don't know how many wise men there were. We know that there was more than one because the word is plural, so there were at least two. There may have been three, there may have been seven, there may have been ten. We simply have no idea, but the number three is probably derived from the number of gifts or the number of kinds of gifts that they brought to Jesus the only record that we have of the lives in general and the visit to jesus in particular of these men is found in the second chapter of matthew there is no other mention of them in the bible no other mention of them in the literature of the ancient world and so while we know that they had names we have no idea what those names were and the idea that they arrived the same night that jesus was born is manifestly not true Luke tells us about the visit of the shepherds. Matthew tells us about the visit of the wise men. When we put these two records together, we notice some very significant differences in their language. For example, in Luke, at the visit of the shepherds, Jesus is a baby, but in Matthew, when the wise men came, he is a child. In Luke, the visit of the shepherds, he's found in a manger, obviously in a stable... But the wise men found Jesus not in a stable but in a house. And so obviously the wise men came sometime after the shepherds. A day, a week, a month, a year were left to speculate. But they did not arrive the same night that Jesus was born. That fiction grows out of our experience with Sunday school Christmas pageants that we've all enjoyed watching so very much because everything has to be condensed into a single hour. The shepherds come and then the wise men come and all of that is combined, giving the impression that all happened on the same night, but in fact it did not. And the star was not seen by the shepherds, or at least there is no reason from scripture to believe that it was seen. We wonder what this star was, don't we? If we seek for a natural explanation, it was probably a a conjunction in the night sky of two or more heavenly bodies recognizable from the earth. And in fact, such a conjunction took place about the time that Jesus is known to have been born. But this by itself doesn't account for the strange language of Matthew that when they left Herod's palace... The star went before them until it stood over the place where Jesus was to be found. Suggesting to us that this may not have been anything subject to natural explanation and understanding, but was rather a supernatural object. Now, skeptics scoff telling us there's no record in the, in the logs of any astronomers at that time that anything like this appeared in the night sky. And on the other hand, there are several places in the Bible where we read of things that were seen or heard only by those for whom they were intended and not by a general populace. But there is no indication in the scriptures that the shepherds saw whatever the wise men were caused to see. Now here we have a number of examples of things commonly believed about the wise men that either have no foundation in the scriptures or are contrary to what the Bible actually says. Now, it's easy to imagine someone thinking or saying, so what? What difference does it make whether they were kings or not kings? What difference does it make if there were three of them or two of them or ten of them? No one's salvation is determined by knowing or not knowing such things as these. No Christian's life is improved by having a better understanding of any of these things. So, aren't we being petty if we make an issue of such things as this? Well, maybe we are, and maybe we aren't. The persistence of these common errors, perhaps among some of us this morning, has a greater significance than is immediately obvious. If I discover that I have believed such things as these, things that are so easily discredited by the Bible, which I believe to be the word of God, then I have to ask myself, what else have I always believed and taken for granted that is also contrary to the teachings of God's word? Am I moving through the days of my life? each step along the way, taking me closer to my grave and his judgment, believing things that are not true. As a Christian, my earnest desire should be to know God as completely as I possibly can, to understand his truth as thoroughly as I possibly can, to serve him as well as I possibly can. And this requires that I strive to grow in my knowledge of his word, for it is only here that I learn about God and about his truth and about his will for my life. If I find that my understanding of the inspired history of the visit of the Magi is marked by easily discredited error, then with trembling I have to wonder what flaws are found in my knowledge of those parts of his word that relate even more directly to my salvation and my service. We wonder what prompted these wise men to undertake their journey. And that question involves another question, and that is, how did they know the meaning of whatever they saw in the night sky? The answer to that question might be found in the book of Daniel. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you know that In the second chapter, there is a vision of an image made of various materials that represents a succession of old world secular powers and empires. And in this vision, there is an object that seems to come from the depths of space that strikes this image with some force that all of its elements are shattered into dust that the wind carries away. And then the object that struck the statue begins to grow until it fills the whole earth. And Daniel says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The great God has made known what will come to pass after this. It's quite possible that this prophecy or a lingering memory of this prophecy among the Magi was in the minds of these wise men when whatever they saw in the night sky appeared and allowed them to realize what it meant. But still, we wonder what caused them to say to one another as the shepherds would say in weeks to come, let's go see this thing that has come to pass that the Lord has made known to us. Their trip, if they undertook it, would be a long one. It would probably be in the neighborhood of a thousand miles. If you were to leave after church and start driving westward and stop about in the middle of the state of Nebraska, you would have driven about a thousand miles. The wise men lived in days of by modern standards of primitive travel. The trip would be a long one. The arrangements for that trip would be complicated. Surely there was work that they ordinarily did that would have to be assigned to others. Provisions would have to be purchased, transportation, arranged for. And men of this stature in the ancient world would never travel alone. With them were servants to care for them. There were soldiers to protect them and perhaps scouts to show them the way and lead them along that way. This trip was a lot of bother. They had seen the sign. They understood the meaning of the sign. Why not simply let it go at that? Now, it might be that the king that they served insisted that they go. If the prophecy of Daniel was known and taken seriously at that time, then the kingdom that was about to be established would have a great impact on the kingdom of the wise men. And perhaps their king might have thought it's best to be on the good side of this new king from the very beginning, and they may have gone for no other reason than that. But there seems to be something else involved here, and that's the personal faith and the persistence of these men we call wise. Where would they expect to find a newborn king of the Jews? But in the palace of the capital of the Jews, which was Jerusalem. We can hardly imagine their surprise or their disappointment then when they arrived at Jerusalem expecting to be the city to be abuzz with the news of the newborn king only to find that nobody there from the king and his advisors to simple people they met on the street knew anything about it. And at that point it would have been an easy and a natural thing for them to shrug their shoulders, to look at one another and say, I guess we misread the sign and pack up their goods and head for home. But they pressed on. Matthew tells us, in fact, of the barely expressible joy that they felt when they left Herod's palace, and whatever they saw in the night sky appeared again and went before them. And we're told that they actually found Jesus, they fell down, and they worshipped him. Now, this word worship might mean nothing other than they, in a formal way, paid their respect, but Matthew uses it more like you and I would use it. For example, in the 14th chapter, we find the record of that time when Jesus walked on the water, you remember that, I'm sure, and they were told that when he got into the boat, that those who were in the boat worshipped him and said to him, truly, you are the Son of God. That's the same word that Matthew uses when he tells us that when the wise men found Jesus, they worshiped him. This joy and this worship suggest something deeply and intensely personal in the quest of the Magi. And it heightens the likelihood that you and I and all who embrace Christ in saving faith will see these men again, whatever their names or their number or their nationality, and we will join them forever singing the praises of the king, hundreds of miles, days and weeks on the road, facing the rigors of storms around them and the suspicions of the people through whom they passed, discouraged to find that in the palace in Jerusalem no one knew what they were talking about, surprised at the simple home in which they eventually found the newborn king. Yet these men persisted and found in Jesus, it seems, what their souls craved. In 2,000 years, nothing has changed. To this day, it remains true that those who seek peace with God, that those who truly hunger and thirst after righteousness, that those who long to know that their sins are forgiven, find what they seek in Jesus and in Jesus alone. If you're here this morning as a person who is not absolutely sure that you are a Christian, I urge you during this season to accept his invitation. He says to you, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For Jesus said, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The wise men brought gifts to Jesus. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And much is often made by commentators and by preaching of the symbolism of these gifts. The gold is a gift to royalty. The frankincense is a, is a sign of deity and Myrrh represents Jesus' mortality, in fact, a substance that was often used in preparing a body for burial. Now, we know that as the Son of God, Jesus is both royal and divine. And we know that as the Son of Man, he was destined for the suffering and the death of the cross. All of this is certainly true, but whether the gifts of the Magi were intended to express all of this is something that we simply can't know. All we know about their perceptions of who Jesus is, is that he was born king of the Jews. In the 10th chapter of 1 Kings, we find the record of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon, king of the Jews at the time. And we read now, the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. Now, if we assume that among the spices that the Queen of Sheba brought to Solomon were frankincense and myrrh, then we might fairly conclude that such things as these were standard gifts that were exchanged on the occasion of state visits, and that in the minds of the givers they had no particular symbolic value. But whatever was in the mind of the Magi, we see in these gifts the provision of our God. When Joseph and Mary went to the temple on the 40th day of Jesus' life, probably not long before the Magi came to make the required sacrifice, they brought the least, the cheapest that the law allowed, and that was a pair of young pigeons. This means that the family cut off from Joseph's work and means of income were poor and they were struggling and that very soon, warned by an angel of the hideous plot of Herod, they would have to leave, not for home in Nazareth, but even further away in Egypt. The gifts brought by the Magi were not only of great value, but they were also easily converted into cash. And thus the family's retreat was financed by the presence brought by these men who came to worship Jesus. How often in the stories of godly people in the Bible and how often in the stories of our own lives do we see the richness of the blessing of God taking unusual steps to meet the needs of those people that he has chosen to be his own. For us, the Magi, I have one last lesson, and that is found in the observation that they were Gentiles. The word Gentile is an English translation of the Greek word ethnos that appears often in the Bible. The Jews looked at themselves as the people of God, and all of the others were the nations or the Gentiles of the world, and so anyone who was not a Jew was a Gentile. It was not necessarily a pejorative term, but it was one that made a distinction between two different kinds of people. The Magi were Gentiles. Coming to Jesus, they traced the steps taken by Abraham hundreds of years before, but they were not the descendants of Abraham. Along their way, they traced the route taken by Jacob, but neither were they numbered among his children. Yet they figured into prophecies that were given to these two patriarchs. In Genesis 12, the promise of blessing to Abraham, to his descendants, and through his descendants to the nation of the world—a promise that is almost word for word repeated to Jacob in the 34th chapter of Genesis. We come to the ninth chapter of of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and there we find the beautiful promise about the coming of Christ: "Unto us a child is born; unto us a son is given." The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But just before Isaiah announces the coming of the Christ child of the Messiah, he says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is a reference to the Gentiles, to those who were not at the time numbered among the covenant people of God. All of this combines to remind us that the grace and the mercy of God are intended, as Paul writes often in Romans, for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. And in this we rejoice, because we are Gentiles. The Magi seem to have experienced that grace and mercy, which are continually offered to all who will believe. We number ourselves among those Gentiles to whom Peter wrote, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. The Magi were embraced by the promise that God made to Abraham and renewed to Jacob. You and I are blessed by that promise. May this be the confidence and the joy of every one of us as we proceed proceed through this season in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, born to be the King of the Jews, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended to be the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Our God, we rejoice in this season because it affects us permanently and eternally and directly. We thank you for this Jesus who came. We thank you for the myrrh that reminds us that one day his tortured flesh would lie in a grave for us and for our salvation. We thank you for the gold that speaks to us of his royalty and the frankincense of his deity, And remembering all of these things, our God, we as a people without gold, without frankincense, without myrrh, offer ourselves to him. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.